Washingtons, Jefferson, Adams, we're learning that our founders did some horrific stuff. And there are some things that have happened in the history of all this that we think is so wonderful and great. We're learning may not be as wonderful and great as we thought it was. And so that idolization, having that, it kind of blocks people from seeing there's some stuff that we have to deal with. And our heroes weren't always as wonderful as we thought they were. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling in today, we have Dr. Joanne Lunsford. Dr. Lunsford's education and career have focused on the intersectionality of race, social work, and criminal justice. Also, how to create and utilize strategies to deconstruct race, disrupt racism, and dismantle racial inequality in all systems and disciplines. Dr. Lunsford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today, Gabe, for your wonderful podcast. I'm so excited for today. I am excited to have you here as well. Now, full disclosure, I saw you present at a conference here in the state of Ohio, my home state, and I was absolutely enthralled because you did a wonderful job of explaining very uncomfortable topics to a room full of, frankly, mostly white people, and you you had us wrapped around your finger. We were very interested in learning from you, in understanding, and while it was uncomfortable, It was very educational and illuminating. And I think that's a real gift. And, and I, I just, I absolutely had to have you on the podcast once that moment occurred. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Now, critical race theory is defined as, quote, a set of ideas holding that racial bias is inherent in many parts of Western society, especially in its legal and social institutions, on the basis of their having been primarily designed for and implemented by white people, unquote. It really doesn't sound all that controversial to me. And in in fact, it just makes a lot of sense. But this has just been a powder keg for politics, for arguments, for debate, and for hurt feelings going on a few years now. Why do you think that is? Uh, Well, unfortunately, oftentimes with topics in society that may make people feel uncomfortable or a certain population uncomfortable, like critical race theory, People shy away from that because it is perceived as something that's going to judge them or make them feel bad. Instead of realizing that critical race theory is about transforming that relationship between race, racism, and power, and not wanting that to happen because of perceived privilege and things that might go away from that, it's really about a way of understanding how American racism has shaped policy and society. So putting those in in simple terms says, wait a minute. We may have done something wrong. Somebody telling us we did something wrong. We don't want to deal with that. We don't want to have to deal with that because that's too hard. And we might have to have some truthful conversations and we might have to look ourselves in the mirror about some things. So we sort of divert the conversation to go somewhere else instead of it's a true intended meaning so that the change that it can elicit, we ensure that it doesn't happen. I think the walking theory is that slavery is all in the past, right? I I hear this time and time again. Slavery's in the past. No one alive has ever owned slaves. So why are we even still discussing this? Can't we just move on? And there is a huge section of people. And by section of people, I, I don't mean trolls on the internet. I mean senators, congressmen, politicians, presidents who feel that critical race theory is just designed to make white people feel bad for something that they had no part in. 
Well, and I'm glad you brought that up. That's true. A lot of people do say, well, you know what? Slavery's over. We've had the first black president. Why are we still talking about certain things, right? But the truth of the matter is the slavery of 1619 has been legally dismantled and everything, right? Abolished. What we're talking about, though, that that legacy of slavery, it still lives. There's a certain population of the dominant culture that is still living with the benefits of slavery. And then there are the certain population of non-dominant cultures that are living with the impact and shame of slavery, right? So when we're talking about that legacy, we're talking about like this legacy of colonialism that's overtaken lands and instituted slavery, created the Willie Lynch theory, created Indian boarding schools, created Jim Crow laws, black codes, redlining, encampment, and so, so much for non-dominant cultures. So you have those atrocities, right, that were pretty much intentional. Um, And what we're saying is they created systems, these systems that are designed to structure the way we live. So they created these systems, and then those systems then influence communities, which then produce non-productive value systems or even reinforced value systems and social norms. And then that then encourages problematic thinking that drive destructive behaviors. So basically, when they're saying that slavery may be over, the actual act may be over. However, the legacy and the impact of it still lives today. As I was listening to you speak, Dr. Lunsford, I was thinking about my own experience. I was born in 1976, and my grandfather was born in 1931. Now, when you're born in 1931 and you retire in the in the late 80s, that means the majority of your work experience is, is going to be 50s, 60s, 70s, right? And, and that is when my grandfather got his job and built his career. And when he retired, he got a pension. Now, everybody has heard of the of the civil rights movement. We all, we all know about the 60s. We we all know about Dr. King. It, it's it's quoted all over Facebook. I have a, a a very strong reason to believe that people understand the civil rights movement. But I think maybe what people miss is that jobs with pensions for grandparents were were predominantly available only for the white culture. African-Americans weren't getting jobs with pensions and they were paying higher interest rates on their mortgages and money that they needed to borrow to sustain life. So that means when Gabe came around in 1976, graduated high school in 1996, and I needed seed money to start a business, I needed money for school or healthcare, my grandfather had it because he was all pensioned up. Grandma and grandpa were, they were sitting pretty. They had all of this extra money because of the benefits of a time when I was never born. When you say that that the white community is still reaping the benefits or sharing in the benefits, is that an example of it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When you take times like that um, where... African-Americans and brown indigenous folks were left out of the equation and being able to be employed, especially in positions that had benefits with insurance and uh, retirement and things like that, and that weren't as much of a tax on their on their physical health, then you also talk about, like you said, the benefits of generations later that, that their uh, descendants then now have, right? When you're talking about the GI Bill and when you're talking about different things um, from the past that mainly white and especially white men were able to benefit from. And then they were able to buy a house or be able to have a house that had equity and had value because it was in certain neighborhood. Um, They were able to have a job to not only give them insurance and benefits, but they were able to refer other, other friends and family members who usually were white men 
for positions in that company and different jobs that were coming up. So even when we're talking about that system of meritocracy, right, even when I had African-American for the position, they may not even had a chance to interview or be even be able to even fill out the application because John said, hey, I have a neighbor who'd be great for this position. The manager loves John. And so then says, hey, yeah, tell your neighbor to come in. The neighbor comes in and talks to him for a few minutes. Say, yeah, come, come to work on Monday. There's a lot of research on these, how racial inequality sometimes exists without intentional racism. But because of, I referred my friend to this job and then everything spirals from there. And so then there's even more qualified people out there who were not even afforded the opportunity. And so John's neighbor then thinks, oh, I got this job on my own merit. And, and, you know, if everybody else will pull themselves up in their bootstraps and, and work a little harder, they could have these opportunities as well. And so you're talking about not understanding that there were people who were left out of the system The societal pushback on that is if we're truly looking at everybody as equals, then why does race matter? We should just ignore race. If we're evaluating everybody on their merits and their merits alone, then that evaluation should not take into account race. When we're saying we don't want to use race as a factor, let's just take um, higher education for an example. Let's just say uh, Shanae, who is an African-American person, and Julie, who is is a dominant culture or white female and so Shanae has been in an inner city school. She graduated with a 3.7 GPA. And then you have Julie, who was in a suburban school with many access to resources and things like that. And she graduates with a 3.7 GPA. But the 3.7 GPAs are a little different because Julie's school is suburban and had all this other stuff. What we're not talking about is the legacy of slavery. We're not saying that, you know what, Shanae was in this inner city school that due to the legacy of slavery is in a neighborhood that is impoverished, that lacks access to resources, books, and field trips or exposure trips or however you refer to them, and maybe teachers who are burnt out with overcrowded classrooms. And we're saying that despite all that, all the things that the structural society, racism and structural determinants of health, social determinants of health, all of that, despite all of that, Shanae has went to this school and succeeded and got a 3.7 GPA. So she's put herself above. But then when you get to Julie, who has been at this school with all the comforts and all the abilities and tutoring services and all this other kind of stuff, she has a 3.7, which is great. But so are those 3.7s different? They might be. And we might have to give an edge to Shanae because of what she has to overcome. And if we are able to bring her to a Columbia or Harvard or my alma mater, Miami of Ohio, or Case Western or USC, because I love my alumni schools. But uh, if we are able to bring them here and give her access to resources and opportunities, there's no telling where she can go in life and what she can do. There are many reasons that diversity is important, but one of the biggest ones, I think, is because of what you just said. I I think that the average white person is going to say, well, look, it's a more challenging school. Therefore, Julie's 3.7 is worth more. And yet you just articulated, hey, look, there's this challenge, this challenge, this problem. There's not, I believe you use the word cushy tutoring services uh, over on Shanae's side. So she had to overcome all of that and still get the 3.7. So actually, Shanae is a better candidate. 
candidate. And and we can go back and forth and, and argue it until we're blue in the face. But the, the thing that always pops into my mind is we seem to understand the power and value of diversity whenever it comes to selling widgets. And you're probably thinking to yourself, Gabe, what, what the hell? Where did widgets come from? I'm talking about focus groups. There is no company in America that would have a focus group that had 20 19-year-old white males. Just I, I don't care what they're selling. They would not want 20 identical people in that focus group. They go out of their way to make sure that there is diversity in that room so that they can get an idea for how to position their product. And they see that as real value. But yet we move over to higher education. We move over to C-suites. We move over to management. We move over to uh, executive decision-making or team building, et cetera. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, you recognize that all of your employees are about the same age, the same race, the same gender, and come from the same neighborhood. And they're like, well, right. They were the most qualified people. Okay. You you're saying that, but isn't this lack of diversity problematic? And and there doesn't seem to be an understanding of that. And I, I have, this is my favorite story for why diversity matters, no matter what you think. And it's the Franklin County Common Pleas Courthouse that opened in Columbus, Ohio in 2011. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me. Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back discussing racial inequality with Dr. Joanne Lunsford. For the interest of this story, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. None of the architects, none of the builders, none of the designers were misogynists. I'm just going to, I have no idea if that's true or not, but for the point of this story, I'm going to just give it to them. They were 100% reasonable, women-loving people without a misogynistic bone in their body. But this group of men thought a glass staircase Mm -hmm. right in the middle, right when you walk in, would be a beautiful idea. Now, listen, as a man, I I think it's a great idea too. I don't know if you've seen this thing, but it was beautiful. Oh, Dr. Lunsford, it was beautiful. It was glass. It looked like it was floating. It looked like something out of a fairy tale. Absolutely. I worked there at the time. I'm very familiar with it. Yes. Yeah. And and again, I want to be very, very clear. The men were not misogynist. I don't know if they were or not, but for the purpose of this analogy, we're just going to go with they weren't. That just wasn't their perspective. They didn't think about wearing a skirt or wearing a dress or the fact that the required courtroom attire 
to go to court, to be a, a prosecutor, a lawyer, a defendant, whatever it is for women it is often a skirt or a dress. So they were required to wear this by societal norms and expectations, and yet also expected to walk up a glass staircase that any person could stand underneath and look up. And if they just would have had diversity, if they just would have had one woman, I, I sincerely believe this whole problem would have been solved by one female architect saying, uh, guys, what about dresses? And I believe that the men would have been like, oh yeah, yeah, what about dresses? And then they would have found a, a solution so that we could have still gotten the beautiful staircase without the peeping Tom aspect. And of course, without the national headlines about Columbus, Ohio building the, this, this courthouse to misogyny that frankly are still online and still linger to this day. I'm so glad you used that example. I actually worked at the courthouse at that time. I wouldn't use the steps when they first came out. I used the elevators. Because you're like, who created this? And then who said it was okay? So the value and the importance of diversity at the table. Exactly. And oftentimes it goes back to when we were talking about the meritocracy, when we're talking about who's the best qualified, oftentimes when they're interviewing and they're looking for the most qualified person, unconsciously, that bias thing, they oftentimes look for a person that's similar to them in their beliefs and their values because they believe that person to be the most qualified because they mirror what I'm saying and I must be right. So I'm hiring people that think like me, look like me, believe like me and promote like me. They then see them as the most qualified. And if you've had the people who have been having access to the jobs and everything else, most of the times they were white men. And, and so yet again, black, brown, and indigenous folks are left behind, even though they may be the most qualified because sometimes when they are in the interviews or in the hiring process, many times when there is a dominant culture person interviewing, then that person sometimes will say, you know what? It was just something about it. We didn't click. It's just something about it. I don't get it. I don't think they're going to fit in right. Whenever these conversations come up publicly, the conversation always turns to how is the black community going to respond? How is the black community going to resolve these issues? And the issue that the black community is, is supposed to resolve, I, I guess, is racism. I, I want to ask you, as an expert, as someone who has studied this, how do you think the black community should respond? So racism is not a black people problem, right? Racism is a white people problem. Black people just live with the impact of it. And so it's for white people to clear up the race problem because it's their problem. They created it. So it's for them to help heal it and to help eradicate it. So what we're talking about is there are a lot of broken people in the society and many of them happen to be in a black community, right? Because this society was built and designed to break them. And so then when they get broke, we have the audacity to blame them for being broken. And then the nerve to say, hey, why don't you fix it? I'm sorry. How insane is that? And so to blame people for the condition they're in because of the way you set up society to devise it, to create the condition, and then tell them to fix it is crazy. So what has to happen is the white community has to deal with those systems that have been created that perpetuate their communities, because those have validated and promoted the non-productive value systems and social norms that are existent in dominant culture communities, which allows them to encourage problematic thinking that says, hey, Black people need to fix their own problems. 
it's their problem. And so they derive the destructive behaviors of ignoring the school systems, the medical systems, the healthcare issues, the, the abuse, the drug, the addictions, all this other kind of stuff. So you have those destructive behaviors that allow you to turn your head to them and say they're not our problem because of that. But instead, you have Black, Brown, Indigenous folks living with the consequences of that system that is brought up. So this is why this is so important. Because if we really want, if we really want society to change, we have to first admit these intentional atrocities. Oh my Lord, how hard is that, right? So we have to admit that slavery happened. We can't try and write it out the history books and say, you know what, let's pass legislation where we no longer talk about it and we act like it didn't happen. We can't say, oh no, we don't want to, we pass legislation where we no longer talk about race. We don't talk about issues and we don't talk about slavery and we don't talk about Jim Crow and we don't talk about black codes and we don't talk about Indian boarding schools, right? Because Race is the part that we don't want to talk about stuff to admit stuff. Because we don't want to talk about race. We got to get the courage. We got to put on our big girl panties and big boy draws and start talking about race. So we have to admit these intentional atrocities happen because that's the only way we can dismantle and recreate systems. We have to dismantle what we have and recreate new systems so that we then promote improved and just communities. Communities that see people as people and humans and humans. And then we can deconstruct these current value systems. That's how we change and disrupt problematic thinking that then drive productive behaviors that then heal and unite our country instead of dividing our country. We have to go back to the basics and say, okay, we messed up. And it's okay because we can't change the past. But what we can do is change how we do things in the future. Dr. Lunsford, thank you so much for being here. I have one last question before we go. Can you give us some hope? Can racial inequality be eradicated? Absolutely. Absolutely. In my heart, I believe racial inequality can be eradicated. And when I was doing my dissertation, we call it senior capstone defense, one of my committee members, who was a white male, looked at me and said, Joanne, are you telling me that you believe racial inequality can be eradicated in this country because I don't think it ever can be. And it's really great to be in this idealistic world. And I said, it absolutely can. And I will die trying to make it happen because guess what? No one thought slavery could ever end because it benefited too many people up into the Emancipation Proclamation, up into Juneteenth or whatever, when no one thought could happen, happened. And I truly, truly believe racial inequality can be eradicated. It, it may take a while, but we can do the work and we can make it happen so that generations in the future don't have to deal with some of the stuff that we have dealt with and ancestors have dealt with because our ancestors dreamed it. We're going to make it happen. I sincerely hope that he is wrong and you are right. Now, where can folks find you online to learn more? Right now, you can find me on Facebook and you can find me on LinkedIn under Joanne Lunsford. My company is called the RCB Initiative, LLC. And if you have questions, hit issues, whatever, hit me up. I'll get back in touch with you. And I look forward to having so many conversations with so many people because we need everyone in this battle. We need all hands on deck. Dr. Lunsford, thank you so much for being here. And a big thank you to all of our listeners. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'm an award-winning public speaker, and I could be available for your next event. I'm also the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, which you can get on Amazon. However, you can grab a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me just by heading over to my website, GabeHoward.com. 
Wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It's absolutely free and you don't want to miss a thing. And listen, can you do me a personal favor? Recommend the show. Do it on social media. Mention it in a support group. Send somebody an email. Hell, send somebody a text because sharing the show is how we grow. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.